And the day that I found out that the that it was in fact 410 parts per million, it was like, you idiot. You know, this thing, this gas detector in your hand was telling you for those last two decades that the carbon dioxide level was changing. It was, they are incredibly accurate. Um, and so it just, so that's why it came as such a shock to me because I was disappointed that nobody, none of my supervisors, none of my training had made allowance for this shift. The, the party that can figure this out, how to frame climate action in terms of working class politics is going to have a lethal political coalition on its hands. If people who are interested in climate put as much uh, I guess attention and energy into trying to support alternatives, think of alternatives um, as they do in trying to shut down the industries, then the, that's what the coal miners that I spoke to were asking for. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Thanks for um, yeah coming and watching the film. Uh, I made the film as a conversation starter. So this part until um, seven is the part that I'm really interested in, which is, yeah, us kind of being able to, I guess, talk about some of the issues that come up in the film and, and try to help really. Um, so I'll just introduce um, the gentleman sitting next to me uh, and then they can kind of tell you more about the work that they've been doing. But uh, Grant Howard um, is a person who's been working in the coal industry since 1981 um, in the black coal industry based in Mackay, but started off in Illawarra. Um, so I believe you're down in Illawarra staying there at the moment. Um, yeah. Um, and I won't go into too much detail because it'd be great to hear from you kind of talking about where you're at now and in terms of your thoughts on coal and climate. And then Dr. Robert McNeil um, is a, uh, a person who works here at Sydney University, is associated with the Sydney Environment Institute and has worked specifically um, looking at communities that are kind of going through this process, communities like the ones in the film, and um, has recently published some work on the viability of just transitions in Australia. So I'm super interested in talking to you about that. And then the third um, person who is going to join us is Andy Payne, who will be coming on this screen, I believe, sometime pretty soon. Um, so I'll just introduce Andy while we wait. So I met Andy in 2019 when I went up to do a different film about um, a young 11-year-old activist who lived uh, pretty close to Collinsville, actually. And um, there's a, a camp um, that is in between Bowen and Collinsville up in Queensland. And that's where I met Andy. So, um, hey, Andy. Hey. Uh, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. How are you, Kim? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. I'm just kind of introducing you. So, I was just saying that I met you up uh, at Camp Binby up in 2019. And um, yeah, I've seen Andy uh, different times over the past few years, actually, um, 
when when I've gone up to uh, try to cover the issue of coal and the Adani Carmichael mine. Um, and then I started reading some of Andy's work um, recently and Andy's a really powerful writer as well. So a uh, um, person who's involved as a community organizer and uh, broadcaster and writer. The whole purpose of this is to have a really good conversation with all of you guys as well. So, um, you know, it's much more interesting if we hear from everyone here who wants to say something. So um, Grant, maybe if we could start off with you, did you want to just tell us, I guess, um, a bit about how you got involved in climate activism, if that's all right? Yeah, so I'm not used to talking to, with a microphone, so how's that going so far? Rightio, no worries, thank you. Um, yeah, so like, uh, as Kim suggested, I started in the industry in 1981 in the Illawarra, 17 years old, and I, I left school sorry, I finished school, finished high school, year 12, um, with only really one thing on my mind, and that was that I had to get a job. Um, it was sort of the recession, we had to have time, and um, that was the only sort of idea that I, I sort of carried with me. I, I ended up in a coal mine, um, Appen Colliery, which isn't too far from here. Um, I sort of carried on there for 20 years and um, fell into this sort of anesthesia. You know, it was the dawn of the digital age, and I got caught up with mortgages and, and families and all that sort of stuff, and um, and then left Illawarra in 2002 and went to Bowen Base, and I've been working there for 20 years. Um, and still do so. I still, I'm still employed in the coal industry and indeed introduce uh, young mine workers to the industry and train supervisors in risk management. Um, so around about three or four years ago, I was uh, just watching, you know, I had, a, I had a break from a bit of a hobby I've got, and I was sort of watching an international um, news broadcast and I just caught a comment about the atmospheric level of carbon dioxide had reached uh, 415 parts per million. And um, I sort of had done a double take because as a coal miner, I'm trained to, um, to monitor carbon dioxide. And, and when I was at school, I was told that carbon dioxide was 300 parts per million. And then when I went to work, it was 300 parts per million. And so as a supervisor, as a coal miner, um, you're trained to watch out for carbon dioxide because it's an asphyxiant. Um, so it really caught me by surprise. Um, at the same time, um, and so in that, I, I sort of thought about that for a while and I sort of become angry because I personally had lost track of this issue. Um, I learned about climate change at school in, in year 12, physics, chemistry or whatever. And so I understood that, but then I'd lost sight of it. Um, I say that I was just anaesthetized. I sort of got busy with life and lost track of it and thought that governments um, essentially were looking after this thing for us, that you know, people smarter than me would understand when to stop and, and manage things. Um, so in that moment, I realised how naive I'd been. I'd become angry with myself um, and then, of course, angry at other people, politicians, um, why did this get to this point? Um, on the side, I, you know, my hobby is bush regen and rewilding of, of areas. So, you know, I was having trouble growing trees. Other things weren't sort of adding up. Um, and so then when, I re then when I found out about climate change or, or re-found out about, of course, you know, that big puzzle came together. Um, you know, I saw things happening on the land and, um, and of course, which were, were directly related to the changing environment changing climate um, and so then I become sensitive to the issue and um, then I watch people in Brisbane um, sort of gluing their hands to the road 
Um, and in me trying to understand all this and reconcile this anger uh, and subsequent grief um, was I just realised or recognised that I wanted to be part of them. I wanted to be part of those people that were taking action, that were trying to um, bring about change. So that's a bit of the background, as confusing as it might be, um, but that's essentially the story. Um, and so I've, since around about four years ago, I, and then of course I wanted to be with sort of Extinction Rebellion and those people. And I didn't understand that pathway. So I ended up at um, my local conservation group and I uh, sat there in a meeting with another lady and um, they were saying that they don't do protests and they don't do this because they don't want to jeopardize their funding and all that sort of stuff. And I sort of leaned over to her and I said, I, I, think, we've, I think we've come to the wrong place. And so um, I'm still a part of the, the local, climate, uh, local environment group, but um, since then have been involved in um, other activism work um, and been a coal miner, um, which, which sort of does interest people um, to understand that. And indeed, it's been a bit of a journey myself in, in trying to reconcile that. It wasn't something that I did overnight. I really had to try and I really did struggle with those two things. Yeah, that's a super interesting story, Grant. I'm sure that people in the audience will have some questions or comments, and I certainly do. So, Robert, could you tell us a bit about your kind of, um, I guess, journey to be interested in this subject? And um, obviously, you've done research in, in other locations. And then I'm super interested about um, the main findings from your most recent um, work that's been published. Sure. Well, I guess my sort of personal journey <laughs> towards it is uh, a little strange. I, I come from a coal mining community in, uh, in Eastern Canada. And um, I, I don't know, I guess <laughs> I sort of spent a lot of my early youth trying to run away from that and become part of you know, urban progressive politics and, and environmentalism. And um, getting involved with studying just transition and, and going to rural communities and talking to um, these people. I remember that this is actually <laughs> where, where I'm from and I feel more comfortable talking to these people than I do uh, academics. Um, so it's been a, a pretty natural kind of um, uh, um, synergy for, for me. Um, I'll talk a little bit about um, some of the work that, that I've been doing with some um, fellow scholars here at Sydney Environment Institute on um, just transition um, in Australian coal communities. Um, if, if you're not familiar uh, with the concept, it's traveled quite a ways over the last uh, 25, 30 years. Um, it's basically the idea that if that, that the most sort of morally just and politically expedient way to phase out uh, polluting industries like, like coal production um, is to focus on designing a, a set of policies that um, really focuses on doing right by these communities, uh, these communities that you saw here in, in Kim's uh, great documentary. And so what does that mean? Uh, it means designing a set of policies to really radically diversify um, their local economies, industrial policies designed to attract new industries, uh, retraining programs to ensure that um, workers in, in the coal industry can merge pretty seamlessly into new good paying jobs. Um, early retirement packages designed to make sure that older workers in their late 50s and 60s um, don't have to take on such a jarring transition at such a late stage in their career and can gracefully exit um, the industry with, with dignity. Um, 
and, and really sort of making sure that these communities have uh, a suite of good paying, secure long-term jobs to uh, move into as coal fades out. Um, because to, despite the record high coal prices that we have at the moment, uh, it really is going to fade out. Uh, and in fact, that's actually why we have record high coal prices uh, at the moment. You have this um, post-COVID recovery, which is creating all of this demand for new energy and, and coal. Um, and yet markets and investors and banks don't want to invest in the mining capacity because they know it'll be stranded assets pretty soon. So you get this really high demand and this shrinking supply, and you get this mirage of, of an industry that looks really healthy and robust here in Australia, um, but which is actually kind of rotting from the inside. Um, so that the, the transition is going to occur, whether we plan for it or not, it is going to occur whether we imbue it with justice principles or not. Um, and indeed, it, it's going to occur whether or not activists are able to hasten it that much um, at all. And the kind of main point that I try to make when I have these conversations with, with people is that um, if we fail to do this planning properly, uh, and indeed we are completely failing to do this planning properly, we're already 15 years behind the eight ball, and neither of the two major parties at either the federal or state level have anywhere near a sufficient plan to take on this challenge. Um, the results are gonna be really bad. Uh, we don't have a, an extensive history of structural adjustment in single industry rural locales in this country, um, but they almost never work out well uh, when, when left uh, unplanned. My sort of point of reference for this is that as a kid growing up in um, Canada, we would take these um, Christmas vacations down to Florida, kind of load up the minivan with cooler full of sandwiches and drive down. And we would take I-75 down through the Rust Belt and we'd go through Michigan and Western Ohio and Northern Kentucky. And you'd look out the window and you'd see the remnants of these once really proud single industry manufacturing towns where about a generation ago, that industry just up and left. And you know the tax base eroded, services disappeared, housing prices fell through the floor. Um, and there was no transition planning whatsoever. And so you'd look out the window and all you'd see is these abandoned houses and burnt out buildings and crumbling infrastructure. Um, and, then, and then on the drive home, we would take I-95 up the Eastern seaboard and then cut through Appalachia and see the remnants of the once very proud and relatively prosperous coal communities uh, of you know, West Virginia, Southeastern Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky. Uh, and, and the same thing, burnt out houses, abandoned buildings, crumbling infrastructure, people with life chances on par with what you would see in some of the poorest parts of, of the developing world, um, you know, substance abuse, all sorts of, of, of social problems. Um, and I, I think what's, what's salient for us to realize when we have these conversations is that those situations in those communities didn't just magically fall from the sky. They were the result of a very intentional neglect of those communities. They were the result of values which said that the free market will just take care of all of this, that we don't owe these communities anything for powering our country for the last hundred years. Um, and um, that, yeah, we, we, we don't have to have solidarity with, the, with these communities. And so the, the thing that I always try to underscore to people when I talk about just transition, sorry, I'm prattling here a little bit, um, 
two things. One is, is that we're a very rich country. Uh, per capita, we're one of the richest countries on the planet. We can afford to do this. We can afford to put $100 billion over the next decade into this a strategy like this. And in fact, that's basically what we'll spend on fossil fuel subsidies uh, over that same time period. So we can find the money to do it. The second thing that I really like to underscore to people is that in many ways, we can't afford not to do it. Um, to circle back to the American example I was just talking about a moment ago, um, Appalachia and the Rust Belt, um, these were some of the key breeding grounds for the type of right-wing, ultra-nationalist, populist, uh, toxic politics that you see in the United States today that is uh, upending their political system, their um, uh, institutions, and, and, and their civic life. Um, and this is exactly the, the sorts of forces that we will unleash upon the country if we allow these communities to, to fester and, and rot in, in the same way. Um, so, yeah, that's key points I would, I would make there. Thanks very much, Robert. I yeah. mean, yeah, again, so much uh, I'm sure that the audience uh, would like to ask about, and, um, and so would I. But uh, Andy, um, yeah, before we get to audience questions, I'd love to hear from you. And um, I guess uh, it would be interesting to hear your story about how you got involved in climate activism and also a bit about like what you're currently doing. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks heaps for having me. Um, like our other panelists here, I grew up in coal mining country as well. Actually, I grew up in Mudgee in Central West New South Wales, um, where there was a coal mine there when I grew up. There's more there now. Um, and so that was a part of my life. But then um, as I, I left there after I finished high school and as I kind of learned about the world, learned about climate change and the effects that it have not only on the natural environment, which I have always loved, but also as a issue of justice, a global justice where uh, the people who have done the least to cause climate change, you know, are often going to be the ones worst affected, the least able to adapt and things like that. And so became very concerned with it and of course have lived through a period where we've seen uh, climate change go from something that our government you know ignored under Howard to you know took some action on and then it's gone backwards and so uh, I guess learning about this and trying to figure out what what can we do about this if our government uh, is unable to do the action that is quite clear we need to do. You know, we're talking about catastrophic climate change here and we know what the solutions are. If they're not willing to do it or not able to do it, how do we create change? And that's what led me to into environmental activism and studying the history and the, the tactics of activism. And so I ended up in a group called Frontline Action on Coal. Um, in 2012, Frontline Action on Coal started uh, first trying to stop the building of the Malls Creek mine near Narrabri in northwestern New South Wales and then uh, in Queensland against the Adani mine and the opening up of a new uh, coal basin, a new coal reserve in the Galilee Basin, which at that point we were like, you know, it's one thing expanding mines, building new mines. We can't, we really can't be opening up new, whole new coal reserves. And so um, that's what we did and the tactics that we use as many tactics used by the environment movement but we at frontline action on coal we um, want to do the 
on the ground, the kind of direct action, getting in the way of the machines that are knocking down forests, that are digging mines, building rail lines, things like that. And so we um, use a lot of techniques in developed in forest activism, locking people to machines, you know, building tripods, tree sits, and using your own body to, to stop the things that you are against and using, uh, I guess, breaking laws that we see as unjust to highlight the, the tension in this, you know, that it's totally legal to uh, knowingly destroy our planet, but it's, uh, it's not moral. And so it's up to each individual to uh, take action and intervene that system. And so that's um, what we do at Frontline Action on Coal. And we've been up uh, in central Queensland trying to stop that Adani mine for the last five years. And of course the, the mine was built um, late, late last year. Sort of the first coal came out of there. Um, we didn't want to allow them to uh, kind of claim a victory. And so I, along with a few other people were arrested stopping their first few coal trains we um had our kind of final actions up there and now um we'll work out what next for the um environmental movement and, and for us on the doing that frontline action where we'll go but there's plenty of other groups um as using the same tactics that, uh, to try to protect our climate as well thanks so much andy and again yeah lots of things I'd like to talk to you about. But before kind of I ask questions, um, I really want to, yeah, kind of hear from the audience. Um, and yes, yeah, so I thought I'd start off just by asking, does anyone, now that we've seen the film, we've heard from um, the three kind of speakers, have any comments or questions just now? I'd just like to ask about those figures, um, the gentleman that asked, said, between 300 and 450, could you explain specifically what that's what that means? Yeah, because I did, just didn't recognise the change. So as a coal miner, I was going to work every day to monitor carbon dioxide, methane, oxygen, carbon monoxide. You know, they're the gases that we monitor in the mine environment. And so every day I was naively going to work thinking it's 300 parts per million. I was checking a gas detector at the start of the day to make sure that it was accurate at 300 parts per million. And, and I'd look at this gas detector over those two decades and it would go between, you know, 0.03 and 0.04. And I thought, you know, them, them knuckleheads aren't, they're not making these things accurate enough, you know? And, and then more and more, as I look back, it was actually saying 0.04. And I was still in that thing. No, no, it's 0.03, it's 300 parts per million. Um, and the day that I found out that the, that it was in fact 410 parts per million, it was like, you idiot, you know, this thing, this gas detector in your hand was telling you for those last two decades that the carbon dioxide level was changing. It was, they are incredibly accurate. Um, and so it just, so that's why it came as such a shock to me because I was disappointed that nobody, um, none of my supervisors, none of my training had made allowance for this shift. Um, the levels that we, we, we look for in the mind that, that are affecting human physiology are more around 1%. Um, but still, you still have to know the baseline so you can understand the difference. And, um, and that's why I was sort of angry because nobody had told me about this. Um, and I'd missed um, this, this instrument in my hand was telling me every day that that was in fact changing. And so um, you could see the calamity in my head. Um, so angry uh, that I'd missed this. Um, 
this this opportunity to, to, to understand the environment around me and how it was changing. Um, I am sort of sensitive to the environment. I grew up in an amazing place. I surfed every morning, went to rainforests on the weekend. So, um, you know, our environment is of, of great value to me as an individual. So, um, so to understand that we had, I had been churning away for three decades and not, and just missed all this was, I was angry with myself. Um, for not recognising that change and and being asleep at the wheel and that generation that was asleep at the wheel. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, thanks for the answer, Grant. Uh, I've got a question for the filmmaker, uh, Kim, is it? Um, what was the reaction among the uh, community up in Collinsville to this film? Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's been really... Um, challenging um speaking to brett so brett's obviously uh the person from collinsville who i spent a lot of time with who ends the film him and his uh wife and um i spoke i've been speaking to brett since uh, i was up there and um i spoke to him this afternoon and it was really challenging because he was really angry and upset i guess more so on behalf of his friends than um, necessarily uh, regarding, I guess, his own circumstance. But he said that, uh, obviously, he introduced me to a number of the, well, all of the people in Collinsville who I speak to, I got introduced to via Brett, and um, about half those people are still working in the coal industry. And apparently, they're getting a lot of, like, negative feedback um, from their co-workers, people in the community for participating in the film. Um, so they're angry and upset about that. And yeah, uh, Brett asked me to like let everyone here know that, yeah, like that they're, because um, I asked, I called him to say, look, the screening's happening tonight and it'd be, I think people would want to know like how you're doing, how the community's doing. And he's like, yeah, like, we're angry and upset. So that was really confronting for me because, you know, that's caused by me making the film with them in it. Um, and yeah, it, it makes it tricky because I made this film with the pretty like um, focused aim. One thing was to help have conversations like this, encourage people to have conversations like this. So obviously part of that, I wanted to be able to continue the conversations with Brett. Luckily with Brett, I can. Um, but he was saying now all the rest of the other guys, like they're not wanting to talk to me. They're not wanting to, you know, talk to people like me, um, that they feel kind of betrayed by the process. So that is super difficult. Um, and I guess like my reflection on it, um, I feel really bad about it, but also I think that it highlights just the, such deep, deep kind of polarization within communities that one of the things that he kept saying was that, oh, you've made a greenie film, it's for the greenies, like, well done, you've made your greenie film kind of thing. And I don't feel that at all. Like, I don't feel like I made it for greenies and I don't feel like the response has been like, you know, great, those coal miners, they're bad, let's get rid of them or something. Most of the responses that I've got have been like, I, after watching the film, want to have some of these conversations myself, which is... Luckily for me, that's what I wanted the reaction to be. But um, it's hard. It's like this polarization. Like the two things that I wanted to talk about in this discussion was 
how to address the polarization just in our communities and in politics here and in our you know society and then also the big thing which all of them asked is like what about the alternatives what's the alternatives and i didn't have any answer to that i went up there thinking you know um well you know it'd be great if there was like big solar farms or you know big wind farms up here and there are big solar farms next to collinsville and a smaller one next to claremont and they hire very very few people so i was like oh geez like this thing which i was like that's the obvious solution is certainly for jobs not the solution um so that's really interesting so yeah uh, again going back to anyone sitting here like it'd be lovely to hear from anyone here about your own thoughts about like um i guess yeah comment on anything but on alternatives i'd like to ask you um i mean do we have examples of successful transitions do we have a successful model we can look at here? Could you tell us about that? It's a, it's a really good question. Um, there, there are models for sure. Uh, when you talk about just transition strategy, the kind of archetypes are Germany, Spain, mostly in, in Western and, and Northern Europe. And they provide us with some really fantastic, elaborate templates. The problem is it's not obvious at all that they're applicable here. Um, you're talking about polities with very different economics, culture, institutions um, to, to, what, to what we have here. Um, but without these massive reliance on, on coal, um, in, in terms of culture, these are countries and polities that don't have rural urban divides at the center of their national politics, this kind of long running antipathy towards environmental issues at the, at the center of their national politics. But most importantly, I think at the level of, of institutions, when you look at you know, Germany, Spain are really the kind of key archetypes. These are social democracies that have these corporatist traditions of uh, high level grand bargains between unions and capital and labor and environmental groups. To, and, and they're just really skilled at, at planning. This would be very, very foreign in the Australian context where we have always done this kind of laissez-faire neoliberal approach will let the market sort of sort this out um, at, at, at the last moment. Um, they, they do nevertheless provide us with, with, the, with the broad strokes. So we know that you need all levels of government involved. You need the federal government with its you know, massive resource capacity to, to be the, the funding engine behind this. We know that you need state governments to set the broad parameters around uh, industrial policy around retraining programs, uh, around early retirement programs and things like that. And we know that you need local communities to be in the driver's seat of really kind of the nuts and bolts of the process so that they can tailor it to their local conditions um, and so that they can feel like they have uh, political and economic autonomy over it. Um, but your question is a really, really good one. Uh, we would be trying this in a context that it's never really been tried um before and um yeah watch this space yeah hi um probably just to add on to that question what do you think needs to happen for climate to be at the forefront of the political agenda so we're going through an election right now and as you mentioned um neither of the two main political parties have climate at the forefront that's evident also in the federal um, government's budget that was released a few weeks ago. Um, I think it's really inspiring for Grant to have shared that you were monitoring 
the level of carbon dioxide, but then it only, were you reporting to anybody or was it just a monitoring? So I think it's also really interesting. I guess this, the question is for the whole panel, what needs to happen for change to occur? Um, for Grant, it was obviously realizing something, but for your, and as I understand that you're still working in the industry. So are there mandates for the company that you're working for, for monitoring these things and then ensuring change is that part of your activism, um, ensuring these policies are mandated or that change can occur. So what do you think? And I guess that question is also for Andy. I mean, you're getting arrested. People with Extinction Rebellion are putting their lives on the line. What would be the turning point for Australian politics and community? We're witnessing floods and fires and it's still not changing. Um, thanks very much for the question. I think Andy, maybe first we'll go to your response. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's a very uh, good question. And um, you would think that with the floods, I guess in so much in the national consciousness that it would be a topic um, that is key to the election. And it's unbelievable really that it's not been talked about as one of the key topics and even Labor is going in with a less ambitious uh, climate plan than it did last election. And part of the reason for that is that they uh, are reeling from losing the last election and they blame that on kind of their climate policy and their inability to cut through to some of these uh, mining communities. They lost seats in mining communities in central Queensland, like uh, in the same areas that are in this film. Um, and now they're worried about losing seats in the Hunter. And so it's a, um, a really interesting, the way that our politics is done is, um, you know, climate worry, concern about climate goes up, but not in the kind of concern, not in ways that can influence the election so much. But one of the interesting things we'll see is the, the group of independents, the Climate 500 uh, independents that are sort of, you know, not necessarily identifying as left wing, but like sort of centrist with, but believing in climate action. Um, and so hopefully something like that can, can challenge the major parties. Um, but the other thing that we need is that it really, it needs to be made into uh, a key political issue. And I think in 2019, we saw an incredible amount of, um, political momentum around climate change. You know, Grant was seeing people on TV in Mackay, like um, doing climate activism. It was influencing people in these areas. And um, it did, It when the fires came that year, it changed the way that those fires were talked about. You know, that people talked about these things as a climate emergency. Um, and so I think there's a role to be played by everyday people taking the actions that we can um, to, uh, to try to change the discourse nationally and try to make sure um, that it's something that parties are talking about, trying to keep um, the Liberal Party accountable to doing what minimal climate action it has sort of signed up for and trying to keep Labor accountable to having real climate plans that can make a difference, um, but also using things that can raise awareness in our communities, um, you know, all, all the tools that we have at our at our disposable as as activists and um, that means you know there's a, a wide range of groups out there trying to do climate action and they need people to join to add their own ideas add their own connections and to, to connect it with you know the people that we know that are in these mining communities and 
And in that way, we can force change, if not through an election, through uh, economic markets, through uh, unions demanding things, through any of the, the levers of change that we have, because it's just clear at this point that our, our governments are just, they're not up to the task. Like Robert said, they're just, they're either unwilling or unable to do it. And so we need some other avenue of politics if we're gonna get real climate action. Thanks, Andy. And Grant, I think um, it's a good question for to get your response to. I guess for like you you live in Mackay at the moment um, and your son's a coal miner, um, works in the coal industry. So for the community that you're in, what do you think it would take for people in that community to vote for a candidate who is advocating for climate action? Um, yeah, look, it's, it's a great question. And it's something I think about almost every day um, because we're all wrapped up trying to affect that change. And um, when I look at my own experience, you know, um, I live in a rural area. So basically I had to experience the consequences of climate change. Um, and that's the sad part about being a human being. People won't do anything until they are individually affected. So if you said, you know, when will the people of Mackay change? Well, basically when their houses are flooding and their houses are burning down, that's, that's the problem. And we're trying to affect that change before that happens because scientists have now recognised that in minute detail. So um, that's the hard part about it. Um, the other part of that is, is trying to communicate that message, which, which Kim is doing. And, and I really appreciate the, uh, the work Kim's done because um, it's about trying to understand that change because politicians have successfully um, implemented this idea that we want to shut the industry down tomorrow. And I knew that wasn't the case. I've been through, as in 40 years of coal mining, I've been, you know, the Australian coal industry was on its knees in the 80s and 90s. It was nearly shut down then. So I understand what it's like, you know, I understand what job anxiety is like. And so I empathise with other younger mine workers, um, the anxiety that they feel uh, from this media stuff that, you know, greenies like me and, and Andy want to, uh, and Kim want to shut down their industry because that's what they've heard from politicians. That's the only message they've heard. That's the only thing that they can hear because they're so sensitive to this problem of, losing their job. The coal industry has never been a secure form of employment. They're already job anxious because resource companies have created, they deregulated the industry, they, they sort of smashed the unions. Um, so for the last 20 years, it's been deregulated. A lot of people now work for contractors and don't have the same bargaining power enterprise agreements or retrenchment provisions. Um, in their um, employment conditions. So I, I work for labour hire and my employment contract says uh, a, a half hour's notice and that's written in. That's just the way it is. And it sort of works both ways. And at my age, well, maybe that's a good thing, but that doesn't work well for younger people. So, um, and resource, the other part of your question is resource companies, Anglo-American, BHP, um, Glencore, Rio, all acknowledge the Paris Agreement. They all have anthropogenic climate change policies that are freely available. Um, so the other part of the issue is that they, ha they haven't and they won't communicate that to mine workers, which is disappointing for me. Um, I'm angry about that. It was, came as a bit of a relief when I found those policies because I had to find something to hang on to, to float on myself, a raft to stand on. And part of that was that I was working for a company which recognised climate change. And that was a big relief. 
I then become, and I, was, I sort of naively accept, I, sort of, I was naive and I thought, oh, well, they are transitioning, but I now realise that those global resource companies are, whatever they are churning out money at the rate they are, they're going to try and wring that towel dry. Their exit from coal mining is really, really slow. So um, Rio's out of thermal coal. BHP or Anglo-American have tried to get out, but they never got the money they wanted. So they're hanging in there now. Of course, coal is uh, gone up in value. So, um, you know, that'll make that sort of whole thing a lot. There's a lot more inertia for them to leave. And of course, you've got these other people like Clive Palmer and all these single guys who want to come in like vultures to, to clean up the last parts of it. Um, so part of that issue is that those coal mining companies should be communicating that to the mine workers. Um, if you want a glimmer of hope, um, I was actually um, in a forum last week, in oh, sorry, a couple months ago, Mackay, where a CEO of a contracting company, quite a big one, um, I won't mention the name, but um, um, he, he came in to address see, these new guys that were coming into the coal industry in their 20s and 25, and part of his part to be there was about being safe, looking after yourself. Um, I don't know whether it was because I was there, but he then um, went on to talk about the fact that this is a transitioning industry and that that contract, that coal contracting company had now bought some minerals interest in Queensland and it's part of their plan that, um, you know, hey guys, this isn't a job for life. And like um, to be there was just fantastic to hear him talk like that. So that's um, only just happened in the last couple of sort of that month that a CEO has actually said that to workers. Um, other than that, the, the resource companies are quite happy to, to keep their workforces in the dark, um, which is particularly disappointing for me. I'm angry about that, including politicians. And so it, it, rely, it, it sort of, it's all hinges around the politics and the politicians. Um, I'm as angry as anybody and disappointed in our politicians at the moment. It's, it's, it's absolutely, um, you know, it's, to me, it's disgusting. That's just my opinion of it. Um, and I wish I could tell them um, to their face. Um, but of course, I won't get that opportunity perhaps, but um, of course, being part of um, situations like with Andy and, and other activists um, helps in that, uh, in to reconcile that grief and that anger and, and be a part of that change. So, um, I don't know if I've answered the question there, but um, feel free to ask again if, if we need to get to the bottom of it. Um, so we're, uh, thanks very much, Grant. We've got another question over here. Thank you very much. I have two questions, one for Grant and one for Robert. Grant first, okay. If, we're to, if you were going to speak to a very big group of mine workers, coal mine workers, big blocks, okay, what would be your message and how are you going to present it with them them thinking that you are rebel, you betrayed us. I mean, that's very sensitive for Robert. What would be involved in creating a mechanism where miners themselves, coal miners themselves, rehabilitate land and earn or create carbon credits? Because ultimately, carbon pricing and credits will provide the means of a transition. It's one of them, but not the only one. But you must have pricing and carbon credits trading, so we can actually step out of one hole uh, and get into another avenue. So what would be necessary to create that mechanism so that it's possible for the coal miners themselves to do it? They, I want to do it, I want to do it. We've got the equipment, we've got the men working in the mines already. That is important because that's to protect the jobs. That's the biggest fear. 
so they, they can stay in the town, their families are there, the, the blocks are working, women are happy, children go to school. So that, that is the, the, the main crux of the thing, not to send them to, to someplace or displace them. So thanks very much for those uh, really great questions. We've only got actually about five minutes. Um, I think I'm going to go uh, yeah first to Grant, because I think that is a really good question. This place was full of coal miners. What would you be saying to them? Yeah, and look, I'd be really, really scared and anxious trying to have that conversation with a lot of them. I do do it one-on-one uh, -on -one wherever I get the chance. So the way to change culture is one conversation at a time. Every conversation is important. If it was a large group of mine works, and indeed that conversation is about a transition and so and understanding the timelines. And so as a coal miner, you know, it's important to listen to, and be part of the conversation. And that's been my basic message. Understand the timelines and plan for the future. And it's sort of irresponsible for anyone in a job that they don't sort of bank money, put money away, or are reckless with their money. So my message to young mine workers is if you're in the industry, look, you know, be responsible. Um, to answer your question, um, I would say um, be part of the conversation. There is no value in standing on the sideline waving a shovel in the air because that's what they're doing at the moment. And if they keep doing that, then they're simply going to keep doing that. And at, at some point, resource companies just simply walk away. Um, that's what they've done in the past. Um, and I've been there uh, in that situation and watched mine workers get retrenched and watched them move and watched them pack up their bags. I've seen all that. Um, and so, and so looking forward for those guys um, is to understand the, and look at the timeline. So metallurgical coal, you know, put a number on it, could be 20 years. Thermal coal could be 10 years. And I don't know, they're just numbers, but just try and understand those and then plan for that. Um, understand your retrenchment provisions. Uh, they're already in place for mine workers. It's not such, like I've been retrenched once um, in 2002. And so in many, 50% of the workforce is already that um, golden handshake, as they call it. And it's quite generous. Um, look, being honest, there's, there's probably 5% of the workforce who want to get retrenched because they're my age and they'd be happy to take the money and leave. And, and I, I guess I don't know whether it's, yeah, but that would be right. So um, for the, for, there's another group of workers who haven't got those provisions because of deregulation. Um, so that would be my um, conversation is to understand the timelines and, and be part of the conversation and plan your life accordingly. Thank, thanks very much. So we're nearly on time, but I am very curious because um, Cody brought it up and this uh, wonderful question came up. Is it, do you think it's possible for some of that, you know, getting jobs to coal miners to rehabilitate mines? I reckon you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's, it's there to be done, as they, they noted in the um, documentary. There's about 20,000 or so abandoned coal mines uh, for all sorts of really interesting regulatory and jurisdictional reasons in Australia, uh, just, just on the eastern seaboard that, that need to be rehabilitated. And uh, regen agriculture is potentially huge throughout coal country. Um, and there's, there's, I mean, those are just two things. The, the potential policy options that one of the two major parties has at its disposal. I mean, the, the party that can figure this out, how to frame climate action in terms of working class politics is going to have a lethal political coalition on its hands uh, because it will scoop up all of those electorates down the Eastern seaboard. Um, I, I, very quickly, I, I've written a, a little bit about this, but the, the notion of uh, what we need is a, a Marshall Plan for Australian coal country. 
um, investing, as I noted earlier, somewhere to the tune of $100 billion uh, over the next um, decade. And the argument I make is that once you start injecting these resources into these communities, opening new factories to build, you know, drive trains for windmills and electrolyzers for hydrogen facilities, um, regenerative agriculture, mine reclamation, um, these these communities will see this, they will get it, and it will change the way that they think about this discussion and, 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 and discussions around transition. Um, they mentioned it in, in Kim's documentary, but miners uh, have told me many times that as proud and revered as the tradition of coal mining is in these communities, you won't really meet a single coal miner who will tell you that their greatest dream in life is for their daughter or son to become a coal miner. It's dirty, it's dangerous, it's unstable, it's, it's not necessarily the best career to get into. So if you start bringing these new opportunities to these communities with safe, secure, high paying, dignified work, people will, people will line up, they'll get behind it. And it's right there for the taking for one of the two major political parties to, to, to get it. Um, and it's, it's the one thing that, that neither of them wanna talk about at the moment, it blows my mind. I, I wanted to ask about the, um, the amount of money really that's in the coal industry in Australia, because it's gas and coal are, I think, amongst our four biggest exports. They make a vast amount of money for this, this country. Um, it's not so much the just transition for the miners, which is enormously expensive to me, but it's also just the enormous, it, it will require all Australians' standard of living, presumably to drop if we take out a couple of our major export earners. And I'm um, I'm not advocating the coal industry. You know, I've drunk the Kool-Aid as well, and I think we need to stop it. But I think there's also going to be a, a reduction in the cost of living um, in this country. I'm curious about your responses. And, and, and I, su I suppose the point is that that's going to happen one way or another. And we either get out ahead of it and start building these new industries. You're right, the coal industry has uh, brought in a half a trillion dollars in revenue to this country over the last decade. And it's about a, fossil fuels are about a third of our export profile. If you slice out a third of any country's export profile, it's going to become a poor country very quickly. Uh, but that's what's going to happen if, if, we, if we don't take on this, this planning. That, that is just uh, an inevitability. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's fundamental. And um, one response to that, which is uh, not so much about the overall GDP or anything like that, but... Um, so Collinsville, speaking to the coal miners there, who many of them working in the industry for 30, 40 years, the amount of times that the um, industry had um, gone bust over that time was kind of crazy. Uh, that town, if you're talking about standard of living, the, the town's already um, half disappeared. You know, most of the main street is empty. So whatever standard of living that people are trying to protect with the coal industry for a coal mining town that was set up as a, you know, as a coal mining town, it's not protected that town at all. Um, so it would be, yeah, definitely a different industry would protect that town for just one example, much better, potentially. I think that's what I was trying to say, that it's not, I've been to the Claremont, I've been to these towns, I see they're degrading, people are protecting, there's high wages for a few and not much for anybody else, I understand that, but it's really the gross national product, as you conceded or agreed, you know, that, that is more of an issue than just transition in these small towns, which are incredibly political, it's another country up there, really. Yeah, and look, just... Just, and I might fill, fill that in with it's a, it's about developing a parallel industry. It's not about shut, turning one industry off and then starting another industry. It's to me anyway. I've, I've interpreted it as 
we've got a coal industry now, we need it now, we, we haven't got any alternatives, and it's about developing a parallel industry as quickly as we can. So um, in that, there's, there's some sort of crossover or transfer or um, weaning off or slowing down and starting up, I guess. All right, thanks. Uh, and thank you for the film as well. Thank you for the talk. Um, uh, in the discussion that's been taking place and also in the film, there's been sort of mentioning of like messaging and sort of engaging with community and sort of how antagonistic the Stop Adani messaging was. Um, I'm currently working with the Australian Conservation Foundation and they were sort of fairly instrumental in, in the Stop Adani messaging and sort of working, uh, being inside that organisation, you see that like the actual target audience of that messaging wasn't the Queensland coal mine community. It was like inner city greenies, essentially. Um, and so it's sort of consideration of audience and who the actual like target is of this communication is a fairly like major part of it. But now the ACF and I know other organizations are doing this as well, are actually now going into places like Gladstone and doing community engagement programs to sort of develop localized messaging around this. And so I was wondering for like Andy and Graham, for both of you guys, given the fact that you're doing activism work on the ground in these sorts of communities, how, how does the consideration of like what your target audience is play into the sort of messaging that you, that you come out with and the sort of activism you participate in? Um, do we have enough time to go to Andy for that one? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, um, we were up there, we were based frontline action on coal quite close to Collinsville um, and so spent a little bit of time there and uh, yeah it copped a bit of antagonism and certainly in the media there we you know we were in the media a lot in Townsville and Mackay and um, it, it's very polarized you know there wasn't a lot of support um, but that's not to say there was no support in those areas there there is there's support for you know climate transition which people see as, as necessary but there is also support for um people that are willing to you know tell things tell it like it is or willing to get their hands dirty and go out and and do this work and i think um that's uh, there's different elements of the movement and we certainly do uh need a lot of the the work of transitioning that was done in the Stop Adani movement actually was trying to get finance companies out of the mining industry and some of the other contractors and things like that. And um, those people love coal mining as well if it makes them money. You know, they're they're people that it takes work to transition as well. And actually, the Stop Adani movement did have some success in that way. And so that element of it, you've got to say, well, it, it is worthwhile. But you're right, the message didn't translate very well to the mining communities. And it turns out they actually have a bit of political power, these uh, working class communities, of course, um, of, with the assistance of big multinational mining companies, of course. But um, yeah, I guess then we need other aspects of the movement that can speak to that. And I think that's um, it's really important, this kind of work. I mean, I, I'm so grateful for Grant and people like him that are doing this work. And it, you know, there's been a lot of media interest that shows people want to have these conversations and want to break through the just the the polarization of our media, our social media, and things like that. And so, I think we need a, a broad movement of of climate groups that do tailor their messaging to different different groups. And um, and I think, yeah, being unafraid to to talk the truth and to um, to go to these groups and say, well, 
you know, this is what we believe. This is the morals of it. Um, what do you think? How, did, how are we going to talk about it? So I certainly think if client groups can go to these places, sit down and have a conversation or like Kim did, uh, it's a good start. And I think as well, um, we a lot of political change in this country over the time has been driven by working class people, working class communities, and we shouldn't underestimate their ability to change or their ability to be part of at the forefront of, you know, progress in our society. And so um, uh, working with them will certainly be to our advantage if we can work out how to do it. And so um, we probably need to like finish up um, just on a, you know, hopeful um, point and in answer to your question. So I was speaking to Warwick Jordan, who I think a number of people here have spoken to before from the Hunter Jobs Alliance. And so they're working on this issue in um, the Hunter. And what he was saying um, you know, made a lot of sense, which was um, that the framing that they're doing is around um, basically looking after workers. So on their website, it doesn't mention climate so far as I can remember. Um, but it talks about, yeah, there's changes to industry and the um, workers have a you know, right to be involved in those changes to protect their communities. And certainly my experience uh, personally from having conversations was it was challenging, but when people feel kind of respected um, and listened to, um, and if people who are interested in climate put as much, uh, I guess, attention and energy into trying to support alternatives, think of alternatives, um, as they do in trying to shut down the industries, then the, that's what the coal miners that I spoke to were asking for. Um, and so, yeah, I would like to, you know, do more of that and try to kind of um, promote alternatives and, and work with people on thinking about those things. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for coming. It's been really awesome. And um, I think, yeah, the questions have been great. Um, that is it. Thanks very much. Thank you.